Hello everyone, this is Fortune's Wheel and I am Jonathan and today we're launching right into a topic I, to be honest, accidentally happened upon just a few weeks ago and I thought it'd be wise to push this week's episode back in lieu of this one, as today is Halloween, so I hope everyone has a wonderful and safe Halloween. But without further ado, this week's episode, episode 54, is entitled Heresy in Orleans. Now before we launch right into the story here, it takes a little bit of a setup, and I thought this was a good opportunity to lay some groundwork for some topics that we're going to be talking about pretty soon on the podcast. Um, first of all, let's start with um, heresy. Heresy. Well, heresy is defined by the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, at least, in two similar ways. Its second definition states that it's a dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice, and an opinion doctrine or practice contrary to the truth or to generally accepted beliefs or standards. Now, this is a much broader definition than what we normally think of when we hear the word heresy. Its first definition, however, is thought still similar to the, to the one mentioned already, more specific. It says that heresy means an adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma, as well as a denial of a revealed truth by a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. So heresy basically occurs when someone in the church decides to point their finger at someone else who isn't, you know, falling in line, so to speak. Ah, people. Humans be humans, whether it's a thousand years ago or today, right? Now, Catholicism, as many of you know, is a deeply complex and rich tradition dating back almost 2,000 years. It's undergone transformation after transformation, and much like the Roman Empire, that it more or less supplanted as the driving force behind Mediterranean and European cultures, it involved, or excuse me, it enveloped many pagan beliefs and traditions to make it more accessible to the pagan masses into which it grew. But for our purposes here, the Catholic Church has thankfully organized itself enough to be fairly understood by non-Catholics today. So if you'll indulge this podcaster, it might be beneficial to non-Catholic listeners, and non-Christians for that matter, to understand Catholicism in its most basic structure and beliefs. So let this serve as this podcast's foundational understanding of the Catholic Church, its structure as well as its faith and history. This will also serve as a foundation of understanding our talks about European Christianity throughout the duration of the podcast as well. So it began, of course, with a carpenter from Nazareth who disappeared for 18 years only to return to his homeland of modern-day Israel, receive baptism by an eccentric rabble-rouser named John the Baptist, and then begin his ministry, emphasizing his own divinity as well as a fierce spiritual individualism that would fuel not only the myriad involvements uh, throughout the Middle Ages, but also the science-conscious, political, and personal individualism of the Enlightenment that was, without question, uh, something that led to democratic societies reappearing or appearing, however you look at it, over the last 250 years or so. He, this, this guy, this minister, was deemed a threat to the reigning Judaic leaders called Pharisees, who then petitioned to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to execute him. Pilate famously, quote-unquote, washed his hands of the matter and allowed the execution by crucifixion to happen. Now, crucifixion was a pretty widely used form of capital punishment by the Romans. It wasn't just some new uh, thing for this situation. This carpenter-turned-rebel preacher was named Jesus, as we know, and after his torture, humiliation, and execution, he received the Greek title of Christos, meaning Savior, and his followers, called disciples, began roaming the Greek world, spreading the teachings of their rabbi, their Savior. From here, I think it's safe to make some substantial jumps in the story, though I highly urge you all to find one of the many great podcasts on Christian history and have a listen, because... Whether you're Christian or not, this is the history that has defined how you got here today, whether you're in the West or not. 
The Catholic Church before the 12th century served as the organizational structure for the implementation of and spreading of the faith as pagan systems were encroached upon in the expansion of Christian kingdoms and polities for the first millennium CE. Now, Christianity, after its earliest days of persecution and chaos and disorganization, more or less coalesced its scattered churches under the reign of Emperor Constantine in the early to mid-300s. For the first thousand years, its original five churches, those in Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, were the major heads of the faith. But as the centuries wore on and Christianity expanded northward, other major centers of Christian influence appeared and held more and more sway, such as the churches in Caesarea, Milan, Syracuse, Malta, Sevilla, Cluny, Santiago de Compostela, Rouen, Fécamp, Canterbury, York, Hamburg, Worms, and Kiev. Its nominal head was in Rome, called the Bishop of Rome, and referred to as Papa, or Pope, as we know today. And this man held fast to the idea that he was the central figure in all of Christendom, and unequal among equals, you could say. Of the original five major centers, the Bishop of Rome believed himself to be the immediate successor to St. Peter, who is said to have been gifted the early church by none other than Jesus himself, according to the Bible. St. Peter was called by Jesus his quote-unquote rock upon which his ministry would be built and preached the teachings of Jesus to residents of Rome before being crucified upside down, not very pleasant, on the site that now holds St. Peter's Basilica and the Vatican itself, which is the town center, so to speak, of global Catholicism today. This, of course, wasn't exactly received too well among the other major bishoprics, especially the one in Constantinople, who, whose patriarch always contested that Constantine the Great shifted not only the empire's capital, political capital, away from Rome, but also its religious heart as well, making, you know, if he's going to make a big deal out of it, this, he argued, would make the patriarch of Constantinople the nominal head of the church, if there ever was one. So go back and listen to episode 44, entitled The Great Schism of 1054, for additional information on the breakdown of the Latin and Greek Orthodox churches when that occurred. But suffice it to say, a simple misunderstanding and some hotheads allowed a disagreement to fly way out of hand, causing the two churches to split all the way up to today. That was a very quick and rushed overview of Christianity, I understand for those who may or may not be Christian, or those who may or may not have been raised in a Western society where affiliation with Christianity still doesn't hinder the basic outline to seep into societal and cultural structures. Okay. Whew. All right, not bad. Only a couple minutes of that. So back to our laying of the foundation of Catholicism here. With the exception of the Eastern Orthodox Church, so prevalent in Eastern Europe today, the Roman Catholic, or Latin Church, as it was called then, is where all of the Christian denominations come from today. However, up to the early 16th century, it was only the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, to be clear. Now, within the Catholic belief structure and traditions, there is what's called the four pillars of the one true faith, or in book form, it's called the Catholic Catechism. The four pillars, also called the revealed truths, which we heard in the definition of heresy at the top of the show, these four truths are the Apostles' Creed, the Sacred Liturgy, the Life in Christ, and the Christian Prayer. The easiest way to remember them is simply creed, sacraments, morality, and prayer. These four things are repeated in question-answer format in every Catholic service, to my knowledge, and they are meant to develop and strengthen, as Catholic.com states, a Catholic's, quote, three theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love, end quote, as well as his or her, quote, four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, end quote. The website also states this, though, I want to say it's, quote, fidelity to church teaching, which provides us the truth that sets us free, 
is non-negotiable, which means the authentic formation of our conscience does not give us veto power over any church teaching, contrary to misguided doctrinal views to the contrary. End quote. And here's where the rubber meets the road in terms of heresy within the Catholic Church. Essentially, under no circumstances can your own development as an individual, free-thinking person, override any church teaching. As we said earlier, heresy is exactly that. It is the practice of altering or changing church doctrine or practice without the express consent of the Pope and an official council. Now, one such heresy has been around since the 200 CE. This guy, see, his name was Mani. And he professed that he was the last prophet from Zoroaster through Buddha and even past Jesus of Nazareth. Manichaeism offered a reason-based approach to Jesus' teachings as opposed to a faith-based approach. More than anything, it caused such a ruckus throughout early Christianity before the consolidation by Constantine, mind you, because it stripped the God of the Jews and Christians of his omnipotence and put him on equal playing field with the devil. This, of course, shifts the focus toward a dualistic belief system. I mean, that kind of, that kind of upended the whole system that was desperately trying to form itself as one entity at the time. And Manichaeism became incredibly popular and spread very rapidly, so it was quickly attacked by both non-Christians and Christians alike. But it never really went away. And over the ensuing 700 years, people, well, people being people, of course, were wearily watching for anything out of sorts. And Manichaeans were still around in the 970s, if you can believe it, keeping quiet all those centuries and nothing is more terrifying to people than the unknown. So the church did what all religions do when the unknown challenges their predetermined facts. They demonize it and they dismissed it. A monk named Rodolphus Gleiber, or anglicized to Ralph the Bald, wrote an interesting account sometime between 1025 and 1050. He was a Cluniac monk, so he was certainly in the vanguard of the shift away from Benedictine monastic practices and toward Cluniac monastic practices. And as such, he dedicated this very text to a monk we'll talk about very soon in the podcast, Odilo. Now that's neither here nor there, except to call a little attention to the tight connections monastic life weaved throughout Europe at the time. Our friend Ralph the Bald wrote of this instance of Manichaeism in France in the mid-900s, saying the following, quote, a little later, Manichaeans appeared throughout Aquitaine, leading the people astray. They denied baptism and the cross and every sound doctrine. They abstained from food and seemed like monks. They pretended chastity, but among themselves they practiced every debauchery. They were ambassadors of Antichrist and caused many to turn away from the faith. So... Checking the boxes, uh, this one seemed to have done its job. One thing you'll notice in a lot of accounts of heresy is how the heretics in question, first of all, go against, as we said before, established practices of the church. Ralph says they denied baptism as well as the cross itself. In essence, Ralph is saying these Manichaeans didn't believe in Christ as the cross is the very symbol of him being a savior which is to say the cross is the symbol of his ultimate sacrifice for humanity. This doesn't jive with Manichaeism at all. There might be subtle downplaying of the cross's role in the belief structure, but a denial is simply not true. And to say that they denied every sound doctrine of the faith is also untrue, as the word every implies, well, everything about Christianity. So you see the lengths at which so-called heretics are shoved to the margins of the faith just to prove how out of sync they are with Catholicism. Now, before we go on, it's worth mentioning that another very common trope is how so-called heretics practiced what they call, what the church calls, debauchery. And this, of course, refers to the sexual variety, no doubt. Now, there is no limit to the hypocrisy present in this argument, as bishops and other clerics leading up to the 11th century and beyond even, 
It was widely understood and believed had these people had practiced their own forms of deviance from outright marriage to the accumulation of concubines. This is even documented through movements by 11th century popes, such as Pope Leo IX, whom we've already studied a little bit, to reform the church away from higher-ranking clerics marrying and having families. If I remember correctly, it was the rank of deacon, which was the last clerical office one could hold while still getting married. Well, Ralph the Bald mentioned how they practiced every debauchery, which no doubt alludes to the type of debauchery we just spoke of, and then, the nail in the coffin, was calling someone an agent of the Antichrist, which is to pit that person on the exact opposite side of the faith. Being an agent of the Antichrist was quite simply as far away from being a believer as one could get, so there's no coming back from that. So that's a 10th century account of the Manichaeans in the French Duchy of Aquitaine, a very powerful and influential duchy, mind you, that will only gain power and influence over the next couple hundred years or so. Part of the lesson of these accounts was to show that if it could happen there, oh, it could happen anywhere, making these accounts as much propaganda as they were actual accounts. Now, to ground ourselves back into the context of this podcast, we come to another account taking place in France, this time in the early 11th century. So as we know, the French were a vast collection of differing peoples with often dissimilar interests from their neighbors, but one thing was for absolutely sure. They were, on the whole, devout Christians, and they took a knee to Christian doctrine. Up and down the nobility. However, they were also a pretty superstitious bunch as well, though partly due to their church teachings to always be on the lookout for those (laughs) ambassadors of Christ, or gasp even the devil himself, but also due to their pesky old pagan beliefs that were molded into Christianity. The French feared, like most others, what they did not know, and stories were certainly springing up of questionable behaviors, and peculiar events surrounding certain individuals and villages. Unlike us today, who are so entranced by activities happening around the world that have very little, if anything, to do with our immediate lives and surroundings, the people of the Middle Ages were very keen to their environments, including the people who inhabited it. If anything, and I mean anything, was amiss, any stone out of place or birds singing too loudly, or, or, or breeze from an unfamiliar direction, people would certainly have noticed. And as we know today, understanding what people notice never stops people from speculating, often publicly, about it. Consequences be damned. And yet, though familiarity breeds comfort, it can also, when challenged, lead to discomfort. So take, for instance, the story of Lutard and the Bees, as it came to be called, first documented in the same document as our account of the Manichaeans by our friend Ralph the Bald. Now, Ralph the Bald wrote this account, and I'd like to just read it to you. He says, At the end of the year 1000, there appeared in Gaul, in a village called Vertus, in the district of Chalon, a peasant named Lutard. As the outcome of the matter proved, he could well be regarded as an emissary of Satan. His stubborn insanity began like this. He once was laboring alone in a field and had just about finished a piece of work when, wearied by his exertions, he fell asleep, and it seemed to him that a great swarm of bees entered his body through his privates. These same bees, as they made their way out through his mouth with a loud noise, tormented him by their stings. And after he had been greatly vexed in in this fashion for some time, they seemed to speak to him, bidding him things impossible to men. At length he arose exhausted and went home. He sent away his wife as though he effected the separation by command of the gospel. Then going forth, He entered the church as if to pray, seized and broke to bits the cross and image of the Savior. Those who watched watched this trembled with fear, thinking him to be mad as he was, and since rustics are prone to miraculous revelation from God. 
but he indulged too much in empty words, devoid of utility or truth, and in his desire to appear learned, he taught the opposite of a master of learning, for he said it was altogether needless and foolish to give tithes. And just as heresies cloak themselves with holy scriptures, which they contradict, so that they may practice more wily deception, he too declared that the prophets had set forth some useful things and some not to be believed. In a short time, his fame, as if it were that of a sane and religious person, drew to him no small part of the common people. But the most erudite Gebuin, the elder bishop, in whose diocese the man lived, on learning of this, commanded that the man be brought before him. When the bishop learnt, or excuse me, when the bishop questioned Lutard about those things which, according to report, he had said and done, the man began to conceal the poison of his wickedness, wishing that he had not presumed to take on himself the interpretations of the holy scriptures. But the very wise bishop, hearing unseemly things, nay, rather what was indeed base and damnable, made it clear that the lunatic had become a heretic. He recalled the partly deluded people from insanity and reinstated them more firmly in Catholic faith. But Lutard, realizing that he had been completely overcome and deprived of the adulation of the people, threw himself to his death in a well. Well, in each of these tales of heresy, we find there are only two outcomes really possible. Uh, neither of them include the heretic being left alone and going about their business unperturbed by others or the church. <laughs> in fact, the only two outcomes are either reconversion to Christianity, as the followers of Lutard were, or death of the heretic. Whether it's death at the hands of the people, at the hands of the church, whatever it may be, or death at the hands of that person himself, much like Lutard, who threw himself into a well and died. And that is quite simply the medieval intolerance that hasn't exactly faded away over the previous millennium. Today, though, death comes in other forms than just, you know, death. Anyway, as you've seen, Europe has had many an instance of heresy leading up to the 11th century. They never amounted to anything significant or large scale. However, in 1022, that would all change. Under the rule of King Robert of France, just 11 years after he set a very tragic and shameful precedent. So let's set the stage for this one, the topic of our episode here, because it requires the proper context. So let's start this story with Hugh Capet, a man elected successor to King Louis V, the last in a very long line of Carolingian kings in France. Now, Hugh was a duke before this, but only, or excuse me, but on July the 3rd, 987, everything changed. It was a succession that catapulted a new line of French royalty to the forefront of European politics and culture. And though he created a new dynasty, one we now call the Capetian dynasty, which would last until 1328, this wasn't exactly some Andrew Jackson from the backwoods of Tennessee moment here in medieval France. So he was actually not too distantly removed from Charlemagne himself, as Hugh was of the line of the Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious. Not only that, but he was also the nephew of Otto the Great, the East Frankish king and the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, boy's got some pedigree there. So Hugh Capet came from strong royal stock, but he was also a game changer in many ways. He was married to Adelaide of Poitou, and they had three children. The first, a daughter, they named Gisela, and she went on to become Countess of Poitou. Their second, another daughter, they named Hedwig, after Hugh's own mother, married Count Reginard IV of Hainaut. They would have other daughters, but they didn't marry as high as the first two, and are therefore rarely mentioned. However, their third child, a son, they named Robert. And it was Robert who would take over Hugh's crown and become king of the Franks when Hugh died in 996. One thing, however, that would have an everlasting impact on the future of France that Hugh Capet was solely responsible for was the establishment of the smallish river port city of Paris as the 
political center of the kingdom, and as you well know, remains the seat of the French parliament today. And his son, Robert, upon donning the crown, would take up residence at Paris as well, though put a pin in that one for a few minutes, yeah? Because that's not exactly the full story of where Robert made his capital. But more on that in a sec. So if you remember the old Roman practice of naming a junior emperor, like Marcus Aurelius and Diocletian, until he full-on ripped the empire in half, that is, it was a practice that continued throughout the Middle Ages as well, in, in various pockets. And for Robert, he was given such a title under his royal father when he turned 15 years old. And within a year, he had married the Countess of Flanders and mother of Count Baldwin IV of Flanders, Rosala of Italy. However, within a few years of this marriage, it would be dissolved. Apparently, it wasn't a good fit, but it didn't help that she was much older than young 16-year-old Robert. He would then marry the daughter of the King of Burgundy. Her name was Bertha, and it seems that despite the age difference of a decade, he was smitten. And when, in 996, Bertha's current husband passed away, Robert made his move. Now, many people were against this marriage, including Popes Gregory V and the great Sylvester II, on the grounds of consanguinity. They were only second cousins, and finally, in 1000 or 1001, they were forced to annul the marriage. And finally, on Robert's third at-bat and second as king, he married the woman he would spend his remaining 28 years with, Constance of Provence. And again, more on that one in a bit. Now, King Robert II earned his nickname the Pious due to his absolute devotion to the Word of God and those who taught the Word to the masses. Well, at least that's the front-page story. It is true that Robert II was a fairly pious man, but there have been many pious European kings and nobility. So why did he stand out as the pious? Truth be told, if you go a few pages deep into that newspaper, Robert II was quite the tyrant when it came to those who were simply non-Christian or even Christian-adjacent. That's my own term, and I'll unpack it in just a bit. But for those non-Christian folks living within the kingdom of the Franks, King Robert had no love for non-believers. In fact, when it came to Jews, King Robert would usher in an almost unprecedented resurgence in anti-Semitic violence that swept France and outward into other parts of Europe. Despicable enough to be anti-Semitic, in 1010 he heard word of Jewish prosperity in a village outside of Orleans, and on some trumped-up charges about some plan to sabotage the Holy Sepulchre, King Robert the Pious ordered a Jew, no doubt to act as the dead Jewish canary in the Christian coal mine, to be burned alive. Let that be a lesson for the Jewish people within the borders of France in the 11th century. Unfortunately, as people are woefully wont to do, the French peasantry immediately began an unorganized town-by-town persecution of the Jewish people for the atrocity of, well... Being Jewish. Sound familiar? In some local records, we find Jews fleeing from the terror and drowning themselves and their families, sometimes on purpose. Now, as we know, most religions have a pretty sickening history of oppressive and murderous campaigns against non-believers and believers alike. Heck, Christians even have a pretty solid history of murdering their own. France certainly wasn't the only place for religious zealotry to have taken hold. A stricter practice of Islam was seen in the Cordoba Caliphate in Iberia, among the Berbers across the African north of the Mediterranean Sea, and the murmurings of the Turkic people way out east on the Asian steppes. Cluniac reforms were rivaling the long-established Benedictine practices across Christendom around the turn of the millennium, too. This major shift in Christianity coincided with the rise of scholasticism, which is a branch of Christian philosophy emphasizing Aristotelian logic with a kind of getting-back-to-basics mentality that highlighted the best of the writings of early Christian thinkers and leaders. And while Christianity and Islam were going through their adolescence, ancient Judaism was trying to just stand by and hope not to be caught in the crosshairs like, uh, like Gen Xers in a world of social media. As you know, sadly, Jews were caught in the crosshairs by both faiths. King Robert II had no love for those who deviated 
from this believed one true path. He was a great advocate for Cluniac reforms, which continued to sweep European monasteries. He sponsored the peace and truce of God. He encouraged the appointment of non-aristocratic clergy to positions of power within the French church, and he paved the way for better and safer passages through France for pilgrimage to take place. In fact, all of this actually earned him a reputation of healing powers, the first among Capetian dynastic kings. So putting it all together, sure, Robert the Pious was certainly a pious man, but he wasn't given the nickname from any sense of his piety. People were making fun of him. And in the year 1022, the routine practice of Christian-on-Christian religiously driven violence, which had remained eh, somewhat dormant for centuries under the reign of King Robert II of France most recently, marked a cultural shift that shook continental Europe and its aftershocks would reverberate for centuries more, even creating larger and more devastating events of this nature. But what if I said that it had as much to do with actual heresy as it did with the politics between a king and his wife? Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Now, I'm not sure that spending his remaining 28 years with Constance was the most peaceful choice he could have made. It seems that his ex-wife hated her, and his ex-wife's family actively tried to undermine the marriage at every turn, actually. (laughs) On top of that, if you recall our discussions of King Edward of England's habit of bringing Normans over to England and placing them in specific positions of power wasn't exactly taken too well by the English, well, Constance had a way of bringing folks and kinspeople from Provence into Paris, where the styles and linguistics and customs were quite different. She raised quite a stir, to say the least. And when King Robert's trusted friend and ally, Hugh of Beauvoir, attempted to undermine the marriage in 1007, well, twelve knights belonging to Fulknera, if you remember, father of one Geoffrey Martel of Anjou, who plagued Duke William of Normandy's early rule, well, Fulknera and his twelve knights murdered Hugh of Beauvoir to send a message to the king. See, a pretty rocky marriage, no doubt. I mean, she's no Yoko Ono, but having your buddy murdered for disliking her is almost as bad as breaking up the Beatles, if you ask me. It became so rocky, actually, that King Robert left his wife, Queen Constance, to saddle up with his ex-wife, Bertha, and ride to Rome to seek an annulment with Constance and a blessing to remarry Bertha. But Pope Sergius IV wasn't about to overturn two popes' decrees and subsequently denied the king his request. Now that must have been an awkward meal when he got home. But Robert and Constance would remain married until his death in 1031. Constance would die just a year later, so yeah, this just ended that episode of Medieval Jerry Springer. But first, an interesting event again occurred in 1022 in the city of Orleans, just south of Normandy, the place where King Robert had actually made his capital in order to take advantage of the more centralized location in terms of geopolitics and trade. King Robert II called a council, as medieval kings were wont to do when they felt ecclesiastical matters began dipping into political ones. And he, his wife, and French bishops from around the kingdom all convened in Orleans in 1022 to address a matter that had come to his attention. Or so he says. Orleans was a central-ish city in the kingdom, sitting in the 11th century along the east bank of the River Loire, almost 80 miles southwest of Paris. Though it sat atop a broad, majestic plain rolling downward toward the river, on all sides in the distance was one of the thickest forests in all of France at the time, encompassing around 100,000 acres of oak trees mainly. This wasn't the first time Orleans hosted a council, however. In July of 511, the legendary Clovis called a council to meet there. This was kind of a big one as it decided that forevermore churches would be safe havens for anyone seeking shelter and safety, even those accused of a crime, though unfortunately slaves were the exception. In the spring of 533, the three kings of France at the time, after Clovis died, that is, convened another council there which formally made it a sin to commit suicide, among other things. 
Just five years later, 538, another council was called that clamped down marriage among clerks to the point of excommunication should they get married after they commit themselves to the church, as well as stating that those monks and clerics who revert to what's called a worldly life, basically if they give up the monk life, they will be denied communion for the rest of their lives. Oh, and it established Sunday as a day of rest, though not to the degree that Jews practiced the idea. A fourth council in 531, that's just three years later, in Orleans regarded the celebration of Easter, as well as some other stuff about worshiping animal heads and some stuff about property rights and whatnot. Though it's worth a little deep dive as, as it is assumed to be the origin of patronage, which will pop up increasingly more and more and more beginning in the 900s. In October of 549, though, convened Orleans's fifth council protecting communities against bishops whom they do not approve of, which is pretty thoughtful of the church, if you ask me. Basically, if the community is against this bishop uh, bad enough, then um, the church will not allow the bishop to have that bishopric. So it's pretty clear that five councils convened in Orleans some 400 years before King Robert II's council in 1022. These were a smidge more interesting and important than his, but the one in 1022 probably was the one that had the most intense gravity to it all. It will set a very, very bad precedent going forward. But as I described earlier, Orleans was chosen for far more than its beauty and centralized location. Orleans, again, lay along an incredibly traveled and important thoroughfare between the Christian kingdoms in Iberia all the way north to Flanders. By choosing this city, King Robert II knew that news of this council and the outcomes of it would travel very quickly and very far indeed. Orleans, in fact, was the perfect place to achieve Robert's ends here. So as the council descended upon Orleans, the economic boom was, was felt very quickly. Markets swelled with out-of-town merchants. The roads became pockmarked and difficult to travel due to influx of traffic. And, and the fields most certainly felt the pressure of people taking advantage of a somewhat lack of security. Though the people of Orleans certainly enjoyed the temporary increase in wealth and distinction, they were also all on high alert due to the increase in crime. Just think of the cities who host the Super Bowl here in the States, or the country who hosts the much larger World Cup. Bishops, knights, noblemen, and their families, and of course the rather massive retinue of royal attendants, guards, and family members found places to stay or simply built their own in the area. But along with the king's people came the queen's people. And herein lies the rub. But before we get there, <laughs> let me set this up properly by extinguishing the fires of what has already been debunked about 1022. To cut to the chase, the council in the end sought to condemn supposed heresy occurring within Orleans Cathedral, which it did. Men were burnt at the stake at the end of the day. But according to executedtoday.com, which used author R.I. Moore's book, The War on Heresy, Faith and Power in Medieval Europe, as a source text for its article, they say, quote, The heresy in question has in the past been speculatively associated with Gnostic bogomils on the strength of one account that describes them as Manichaeans. It hints at a tantalizing underground history of fugitive Bulgarian mystics. Unfortunately, the author of that account was an epic swindler and was not a first-hand witness to the trial. Besides, thanks to St. Augustine, Manichaeism was the medieval byword for heresy of any sort. There's no concrete reason to ascribe Manichaeism to those burnt this day. End quote. Okay, so rumors properly dispelled. Again, it came down to the king versus the queen, as far as I can tell. See, King Robert II's second wife, Bertha, was the daughter of the Count of Blois. And the Count of Blois was a strong ally of Duke Richard II of Normandy. Initially, by default, though nothing formally was established between the King of France and Normandy at the time, there was a loose de facto friendship between the two entities, which strengthened Normandy's standing ever so slightly. So stay with me now. But again... 
he set Bertha of Burgundy, the French county, not the kingdom, aside for a more advantageous marriage alliance with Provence, marrying Constance. Now, again, he didn't exactly set Bertha aside. The church ruled against it and forced the the divorce. But um, either way, Bertha was set aside. Quick recap of this happy couple's first couple years can basically be summed up with Constance's ally, the fearsome Falknera of Anjou, murdering the king's knight in 1008-1007, as you remember. Now fast forward 14 years to 1022 and the council in Orleans, and we can assume with that quick trip to Rome to annul his marriage with Constance, which failed, mind you, it was probably a whole bunch of silent dinners in that time. So this whole time, Constance had her own people from Provence alongside her in Paris and Orleans, and one of them, as was customary, was a priest whom she used as a personal confessor. This man's name was Stephen. Well, Stephen and a group of others at Orleans Cathedral were accused of Manichaeism. Again, heresy. See, what this probably was all about was King Robert enjoyed his capital in Orleans for reasons already mentioned. And with Queen Constance's own provincial confessor, most likely gaining seniority over the years, he was most likely shifting allegiances and influence among the hierarchy within the cathedral structure, shifting it away from the king, that is. Now, it's no secret by this time that the king and the queen were at odds, obviously, and were thus forced together by a pope who saw too many marriage annulments in the king's past to allow just one more. So what was the kingdom to do at this point? Well, King Robert most likely cooked up some story about Stephen being a closet Manichaean and influencing others within the Orleans Cathedral to join in the practice. They most likely cooked up rumors of debaucheries of every sort, and they most likely cooked up the outright dismissal or denial of core church tenets and truth. This is from directly from the recipe book, the cookbook of how to label people as heretics in the Middle Ages. So as the trial commenced, the townspeople were already whipped up in a religious fervor. Again, heresy wasn't exactly commonplace as a condemnable offense. It just didn't happen as regularly as it would begin to after this council's proceedings. But people were keenly aware of egregious blasphemies, and especially those committed by the nobility and upper echelons of the church. Then, as it is today, the peasants of society, so to speak, will always have one eye on the privileged, and they will not keep their opinions for favoritism or outright injustice to themselves for long. The people of Orleans, the swelling of people who came to capitalize on the increased traffic and population of Orleans, They had all heard of the charges against these clergymen. And without an honest and trustworthy system of fact-checkers, the king was able to manipulate them rather easily. Control the story, and you control the masses. However, controlling the masses is where it becomes tricky. There's a big difference between setting a stake on fire in the city center and setting a bush on fire in the middle of a forest. Along with the natural increase of crime in Orleans came the expected anger and, as I said, religious fervor of the people. Upon hearing the charges and finding out the time and place of the council, they began to form groups to discuss the matter. No doubt fights erupted in the alehouses and in the streets leading up to and during the council between people who sided with the king's charges and those who sided with the cleric's protestations of innocence. These fights only whipped up the emotions of those around to watch it all unfold. Those fights were mixed with normal conversations where people began raising the ire of those around them with other stories of things they heard of corrupt nobility and corrupt clerics. Well, true or not, the bush was now aflame and spreading to the grasses and saplings all around. These groups, well, they swelled in size. Now the trees were on fire. And the wildfire began to consume the forest that was Orleans, fueled by everything from speculation to facts to rumors. And the people marched on Orleans Cathedral. The king had to act, hearing shouts and bangs from the rowdy, irate crowd outside. And according to the king's side of things, this all started with his wife's confessor bringing her provincial clergy 
including her confessor Stephen, to Orleans. Therefore, it should be Constance who dealt with the crowd that she inadvertently roused outside. I mean, at the end of the day, this was all Constance's fault, right? Yeah, King Robert. Right. Either way, King Robert gets the Husband of the Year Award at this point because he pauses the council and declares that Queen Constance is to step outside and bar entrance to the cathedral. I mean, there's a literal riot, a mob outside. It would be an unbelievable act of violence, though, to attack the queen, let alone even physically touch her. No matter how you slice it, Robert threw his queen to the wolves in that incredibly hostile moment, and regardless of how he may have felt about her, it's a pretty disgusting thing to do. One woman against riled up, angry crowds who, at that point, are seeing only red. And it's the woman who brought the very clerics who are being tried for heresy just inside the doors. The doors. I mean, he's dangerously close to daring the crowd to attack her. And if you think about it, hasn't Robert already tried to get rid of her in favor of his ex-wife? Hmm. So Constance stood at the doors and faced the crowd for the duration of the council, which ultimately ruled to condemn the clerics, innocent or not, of Manichaeism, of heresy. The punishment would be a slow, agonizing death by being lit on fire while tied to a pole in the town center in front of everyone. So, now that Constance's confessor was convicted, she too would be implicated in any heresy, at least tangentially. And though Constance may have been bested by King Robert in this moment, she was no fool. Stephen would be dead soon, but she would still be around. So to make the most politically savvy move that she could, as the clerics were led out of the cathedral doors to be placed in a holding cell of some sort until the stakes be raised and the punishment could be delivered, armed knights and other royal guards pushed the crowd back to keep the prisoners safe for that time. And there on the steps of Orleans Cathedral, for all France to see, essentially, Constance, according to historian Penelope Ann Adair, quote, struck out the eye of Stephen with the staff which she carried, end quote. Many saw this as the queen merely protecting her husband's integrity. However, I think it was much more nuanced than that. I personally think Constance was publicly distancing herself from this debacle, keeping her reputation as intact as she could. Now, King Robert and Queen Constance would continue to quarrel for the remainder of their marriage when, again, in 1031, King Robert died. They even drew their own sons into the marital conflicts, arguing and literally fighting over which one should wear the crown after Robert passes away. They agreed upon the first choice, Hugh Magnus, but he rebelled against them and in 1026 and then died at the young age of 18 shortly afterwards, which nearly broke the king and queen emotionally. But moving forward, Robert wanted his second son, Henry, to take the crown, while Constance wanted their third son, Robert, to be king. Now, Henry was, however, crowned in 1027 alongside his father. But in 1031, all hell broke loose in France for a year or so because of his father's death and the fact that Queen Constance fought with Henry about power and land. After finding refuge in Normandy under William's father, Duke Robert le Magnifique, he returned and forced his mother into submission, though she would die the following summer. The happy couple would have three daughters and three sons in their marriage. Advisa would marry Count Renal of Never. Adela would reach the highest by marrying Duke Richard III of Normandy, but after his death would marry Count Baldwin V of Flanders. And finally, no one knows much about Eudes. Sorry. We know of Hugh Magnus becoming king of France until his tragic death in 1026, but Henry would be the king fighting alongside and against Duke William of Normandy for all those years before William became the conqueror. And finally, Robert became Duke Robert I of Burgundy. Again, not the kingdom. It was a rocky and tumultuous, yet still quite illustrious marriage, no doubt. But the aftermath of 1022's council in Orleans would have far more reaching consequences than just a condemnation of some clerics for heresy. In all actuality, it would 
It put heresy squarely on the front burner of French and eventually European society. The way in which King Robert was able to manipulate not only the church to to bend to his will, but also his political rivals was admirable among the elite for the next few centuries. King Robert, in a way, fine-tuned the playbook for religious suppression as both a tool to direct the church's will as well as the politics of an area. But more than that, King Robert's inadvertent riling of the masses to help his cause was also a hallmark of this seemingly minor local event that future rulers would certainly use to their advantage, some would say even to this day in the 21st century. Heresy charges would now ramp up across France and the rest of Europe over the next several decades. This would then fuel the religious fervor that would be the gasoline that takes one pope's speech of beginning a possibly decades-long, maybe just years-long appeal to retake the Holy Land and transform it into a massive, and I mean massive, response to take religious war to the Muslims. If not for 1022 Orleans Council, one might be able to make the argument that Pope Urban's call for religious reclamation of the Holy Land as late as the 1090s might not have had the same response across Europe that it did. Though King Robert was able to control his narrative and his masses, the rest of medieval Europe, who used heresy to its political and religious advantage, would, wouldn't be so lucky. And it would eventually, centuries down the line, lead to one of the most horrendous movements humankind had ever created. The Inquisition. 